0: You can take it? All right. We are a veteran. You can take anything. Romans chapter 2, to start with, we're going to fire an arrow from Romans 2.12 through to our passage in Romans 7, and it's going to go through some territory, and it's going to go right to the heart of the teacher's gospel and kill it dead. Don't forget, please. And you have been very generous. The month of May is our annual food drive for Salvation Army. List of items on the tape table. You can't just bring pizzas because that's perishable, I think. So, also, there will be no service tomorrow evening. And this is Memorial Day weekend, so have a long Happy weekend, and I'll ruin it on Sunday morning for some of you. We're also contemplating, from my standpoint, mostly due to attendance, uh, we're contemplating going to every other Thursday for the summer just to test it out. And I do as much study for Thursday night as I do for Sunday, as I do for Wednesday. It's like writing a couple term papers a week. But we're going to try that for, a time, for the time being, and we'll make announcements with regard to that. So, let's go to Romans 2.12 to start with, the verse I woke up with on my mind, and we'll continue from there. Let's take a few moments. Silent approach to the throne of grace. Father, it is indeed a privilege in an era of so much hostility, an era of so much uncertainty on the part of so many that we have the sure word of God made all the more certain to us through the Christ event. We thank you, Father, for the perceptive eyes that you offer us so that we may see all things clearly and that we may see through the cross of your Son to understand reality and to understand what you have done for all the human race and all of creation, and for each one of us, particularly and individually. We present ourselves to you tonight, Father, for the purpose of the renewing of our mind and the resultant transformation that glorifies and honors you by means of the Spirit of Christ and we do it in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you Pastor Brown and Pauletta. I saw I took a peek. I have no excuses now. I can listen to messages. Old school. An arrow to the heart of the teacher's gospel. Romans chapter 2 we'll start with verse 12. For as many as sin outside the law will also perish outside the law. And all who sin within the law will be judged by the law. We're talking here about the teacher's philosophy in verse 13. For Paul says to his opponent, the opposing theologian, for according to your gospel, in brackets, it is not the hearers of the law, who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But the arrow that's fired from here is fired straight and true and swift all the way to Romans 3.20. I actually have arrows in my notes. I figured out a way to draw arrows and through typing, but Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and we hit this Sunday morning a little bit, for no human being, and that meant literally in the Greek text it says, all flesh will not be, all flesh will not be. So it's translated properly, no human being will be justified in God's sight by deeds prescribed by the law. Now, remember, as we did this a little bit Sunday, there's the law. I put in capitals the law, which equals Torah, but equals the Old Testament. The law is a pars pro toto, a term that describes the part for the total, the law often there therefore, depending on context, refers to the entirety of the Old Testament, which was Paul's Bible, the Bible that Paul had, the Bible that this Jewish teacher, Jewish Christian teacher, Christian Jew, missionary, who opposed Paul, also had that Bible. We asked the question Sunday morning, what's in your Bible? And there's a totally different vision in Paul's than it is in the teacher's. So there is, let's just capitalize for purpose of teaching, law caps, equals Torah or the Old Testament, which includes also what we call Torah and then Nevi'im and Kethubim is the Hebrew word for it, also known as the Jewish Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Jewish Bible. Torah, Nevi'im, Kethubim. Torah, law, Nevi'im, prophets, Kethubim, writings, K-E-T-H-U-B-I-M. Get the, beam, the writings, including the Psalms. And so here we're dealing with the lowercase law, which is the, com- the summary of commandments of Moses, the, Mo- the Mosaic law. And it says here, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And then Paul adds to this verse, which is a quote of Psalm 143.2 by deeds prescribed by the law. That's the small lowercase l law, which are the prescriptions or commandments listed by Moses in the Pentateuch. So no human being will be justified in God's sight. We went through that, and it's revealed that the quote actually says, no living being, no living human will be justified in God's sight, period. Period. And because that's obviously true, Paul adds, by the no living being will be justified by deeds accomplished in obedience to the law. That's obvious that by an a fortiori argument, if no one alive can be justified in God's sight at all, then certainly no person alive can be justified in God's sight, by doing human deeds in response to the Mosaic law. True Judaism never taught that either. Christianity, of course, doesn't. Judaism doesn't. But there's a certain brand of Judaism with its roots not only in parts of the Old Testament but also in books like The Wisdom of Solomon, Joseph, and Asenath, and other books which this teacher uses to support a false gospel. So the arrow goes from 2.12 through 3.20. For no human being will be justified in God's sight, Paul adds, by deeds prescribed by the law. For through the law, that's the small lowercase l a w, not through the Old Testament, but through the law. The prescription 613 of Moses, but you could also reduce that to the Decalogue if you want, as Paul does in Romans 7. For through the law comes only the consciousness of sin, Paul said. That's a shocker. Through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. So through the law, two things cannot come. Rectification, which is a better word for justification, and rectitude, which is a way of living that's Considered to be approved by God. There's two things, rectification and rectitude. The law can't produce either justification, rectification before God, nor can it produce rectitude or a Christian way of life. There is a Christian philosophy that says you're saved by grace and through faith, but then you live according to the law. That's false. That's a false gospel. That's not the gospel at all. In fact, we're not justified by faith. We're justified by Messiah's fidelity, his faith, his faithfulness. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 21, and this is the astonishing pivot. Again, we hit that Sunday morning, but now Paul says, apart from the law, the small l law, not apart from the Old Testament. He's not talking about that now. He's talking about the sum total of Moses' prescriptions Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Manifested is fanarao, it's a synonym to apocalypto, it's apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language always takes into consideration a universal vision, whether it's a universal homardiology or a universal soteriology. So, now, apart from the law... That's Moses' law. The righteousness of God has been manifested. And then the uppercase law is used. Attested by the law. Attested by the law and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament bears witness to a righteousness of God apart from law. What's in your Bible, Paul? An act of God in Christ which results in apocatastasis panton, which God spoke in the mouth of all the prophets. That's what I see in my Bible. What do you see in your Bible, Jewish teacher, Jewish Christian teacher, who believes that Jesus is Messiah, but who also believes that Christ's death on the cross opened the way for the Gentiles to be converted through circumcision and obedience to the law in order to come into the ranks of the saved people called Israel. Now, this is going to take several swipes to get through this whole thing in Romans 7 because it's a critical passage. The best treatment I've ever seen of Romans 7 in terms of interpretation, I reread the whole thing again yesterday, read it once in December, read it again yesterday is by Paul W. Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R. I wish I could print out his entire article on the subject. It's called The Worm at the Core of the Apple, Exegetical Reflections on Romans chapter 7. It was, we talk about the word groundbreaking lightly, but this was groundbreaking in every possible way. And I reread it, not to reiterate everything he said, But he got the point of Romans. Luther got it wrong. And we're freighted with the interpretations that have come down to us in the 21st century from Luther and Melanchthon and others who interpreted this as a, a kind of a war in every Christian between the old self and the new self. There's a war in every Christian, that kind of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. We'll see what he's talking about and I think it'll take more than one pass at it tonight, but we're firing an arrow straight. We're cutting straight the word of truth from Romans 2.12 through 3.20, 3.21. Please notice, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, attested by the law and the prophets. You don't know by reading the law and the prophets that the Christ event is what it's talking about. You only know by seeing through the Christ event that the law and the prophets are manifesting that. And that's something, it's a retrospective view. The whole Old Testament is being spoken of when he says the law, capital L, and the prophets. That's the whole Old Testament starting with Genesis 1.1. You can compare that phrase in Romans 1-2, the Law and the Prophets, and in Romans sixteen twenty six, the Law and the Prophets. Paul wants us to know that the Law and the Prophets are his Bible. And what he sees in his Bible is a universal restoration enacted in Messiah Jesus through his suffering, death, and resurrection. That's what Jesus saw. Don't you know what all the prophets have said? He said to his weeping, slow-hearted disciples, he said, they all spoke about this. Ought not the Messiah to have suffered to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets and the writings, he expounded upon the Old Testament with staros eyes, eyes that are not crossed, but cross eyes. So you've got to see cross-eyed, but that, by that I mean, of course, you've got to see via the cross. That's why Paul said the word of the cross is foolishness to the philosopher and to those who are very proud of their own intellect. So it's a matter of having the word of the cross in your perception. Through the works of the law, which we'll define as deeds done in observance of Moses' law, all flesh will not be rectified from God's perspective. Why does it say all flesh will not be justified by any human means at all? Because it's being setting us up for all flesh will be justified, and I'll go so far as to suggest this, All flesh has been justified by an act of God in Christ at the cross. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, attested by the law and the prophets, meaning through the works of the law, deeds done in observance of Moses' law, all flesh will not be rectified from God's perspective. For through, this is Paul, the Mosaic law, comes only the knowledge, and we read that word here as consciousness of sin. That is, consciousness of sin, capital S-I-N, sin as a power and its control of the flesh, of all flesh, of all humanity apart from the saving act of God in Christ, which is an act that's ongoing and effective by the Spirit of Christ who is resident in our mortal bodies. Our spiritual life is nothing more or nothing less than the ongoing, effective, saving work of God, effected in Christ on the cross, but ongoing and effective by the Spirit of Christ in our lives. So this is a perfect place for us to apply the pincer strategy from the left flank to a crucial center section of Romans. And I mean Romans 7, 7 to 25. 7, 7 to 25. We've already looked at the prelude of it, 7, 1 to 6. More than a prelude to 7, 7 to 25, 7, 1 to 6 is the capstone of Romans 6, 1 through 23. But Romans 7, 7 to 25 is extremely important. The arrow goes through to this passage. There are Principles to be demonstrated here. And the first principle is this. No human being can be justified by deeds that he or she does in observance of Moses' law. That's the first principle. Secondly, by the law comes only the painful awareness of sin's control over all flesh, including one's own. And this forces the conclusion in Romans eight. What the law could not do God did by sending his son and handing him over for us all. Romans eight two and three, eight thirty two. So as I've been saying throughout, this in turn destroys the elitist arrogance of that fuels group biases and mutual hostility among the saints in Rome, especially from those Christian Jews who are affected by this teacher's gospel and still look upon their Gentile siblings as those who require justification by the works of the law, even though Christ has come, died, buried, and resurrected. Now, here's a Latin saying. This is all very carefully laying out this case here because I want you to see something that we're going to have to look at more than once. Here's a Latin adage or maxim, a Latin saying. I'm beginning to appreciate the Latin a lot more lately, but it's C-O-R-R-U-P-T-I-O, almost our corruption minus the N. Corruptio optimi, where we get our word optimal, Pessima. Pessima. Corruptio optimi pessima. Very important phrase, and this is what it's translated into English. It means the worst evil, optimum evil. The worst evil consists in the corruption of the highest good. The worst evil consists in the corruption of the highest good shooting an arrow directly from Romans 2:12 which says as many as sin outside the law will also perish outside the law and all who sin within the law will be judged by the law that arrow goes piercing right through 320b that by the mosaic law comes the consciousness of sins control passing again through Romans 5:20 in which it says that the law came in by a side door that sin might increase that doesn't just mean so that the acts of sins will repeat and be increased abundantly it means that the control of sin will be intensified in those who try to justify themselves by the works of the law or by the law. Now we have to make some very fine distinctions here. So the arrow passes through t- 320b and then 520 and then to Romans 7, seven. That's where we take up our exegesis tonight. The begged question, a question that's begged. You just have to ask it here. It's asked and answered. Paul says, what then? In 7-7. Is the Mosaic law sin? Is the law equivalent to sin? Now this is important because when Paul wrote Galatians, that is how the teachers in Galatia interpreted Paul's words, that he was equating the law to sin because the law brings the consciousness of sin. So they were saying, Paul's saying the law is sin. Here, he's actually correcting a misreading of Galatians. That's one of his purposes here in Rome. One of his purposes. That can be demonstrated also and has been demonstrated again by J. Lewis Martin in his extremely important book called Theological Issues in the Letters of Paul. Another, word, another passage or another book I'm going through carefully and slowly. What then, Paul says, is the Mosaic law sin? Most certainly not, he says. Another one of the meganoitos. On the contrary, he said, I would not have known what sin is if it weren't for the law. In other words, he'd not know true homardiology if it weren't for the law. He says, for example, I would not know what it is to covet or to crave that which is not mine, or to have avarice or lust or sensual or sexual or avaricious lust. I would not know what it is to covet. If the law, here he's speaking specifically of the Decalogue, thou shalt not covet, Exodus 20 and verse 17. So he's talking about prescriptions here, not the Old Testament at large. I would not know what it is to covet. If the law had not commanded, do not covet. This may be, in part at least, a clarification of the position that Paul took in his epistle to the Galatians. That was hammer time, and he had to drop the hammer to rescue a cluster of churches in Galatia from teachers plural, like this teacher. No doubt that epistle, Galatians, was interpreted by Paul's opponents, including the teacher that he's combating in Romans, as an attack on the Mosaic law. You see it in Acts, too. He destroys Moses' law by Paul. But that was not the case, of course. However, in Galatians, to rescue the churches there in Galatia, the apostle had to make the point with vigor and with passion that no one can be justified By the works of the law. In fact, in a passage that we rarely see the glory of it shining through, in Galatians 2.21, after 2.20, gloriously revealing, because there the the apostle positions the justifying death of Christ against the justification by the works of the law. He said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. His was a theology of grace, not... Of human faith, but of divine favor, divine power. He said, I don't frustrate the grace of God because if justification comes by the works of the law, then Christ died for nothing. Do you know what he's doing? He's setting up an antithesis there between justification by the works of the law and justification by Christ's death. If justification is by Christ's death, then all have been justified in all the human race, only to be awakened by it. The gospel is to wake you up to it. So it's the apostle positions in Galatians 2.21. Read it yourself. The justifying death of Christ against justification by the works of the law. If you're justified by doing deeds, According to the prescription of Moses law, then Christ died for nothing. It's either Christ dying for nothing or Christ dying and nothing else matters is what he's saying, including the human act of faith. Our human act of faith is the gift of God giving us the faith that God has already done it by the faithfulness of Christ. That's Galatians 2.16. We'll get there. I'm even thinking of maybe taking another sojourn into Galatians soon. The apostle then declares clearly by this radical antinomy or antithesis that justification is by Messiah's faithful death, which Romans 5.18 calls his one act of righteousness, not by human works, including the human work of believing confessing submitting to baptism going down an aisle inviting Jesus into your heart or life all the rest of it we've already dismantled that long ago there moreover by the leading off with I do not frustrate the grace of God in Galatians 2 21 Paul is affirming a theology or call it a doctrine if you want a doctrine of rectification by divine grace over a doctrine of rectification by human faith. So when he says you're saved by grace through faith, it is not of yourselves. The faith is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Participation in Messiah's fidelity participation in messiah's faithfulness by the believer galatians 2:20 i live by the faithfulness of the son of god participation in messiah's faithfulness by the believer is rectitude not rectification that kind of participation in faithfulness is what god calls the approved christian life it isn't justification it's rectitude it's righteousness it's the spiritual Life, it's the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit involving none of the Adamic ontology getting busy for the Lord. Fellowship is the joy that centers around this finished reality. Fellowship, church going, church gathering, and I'm still a believer that face-to-face as we call it, not just with a pastor but with each other in a gathering like this is what god prescribed technology's fine if you don't if if you don't have the other option as, as an alternative face to face assembling yourselves together is something that there is a mystery of fellowship there that's not found in listening to the internet or listening to tapes or mp3s or watching dvds and i'm not saying that to shame or i'm not saying that to say too bad you live out of state or whatever. I'm saying that because that's the reality of the mystery of the fullness of joy that comes in 2 John 2.12 when we are face-to-face. Again, that doesn't just mean a pastor face-to-face with the congregation. It means all of us face-to-face with one another, and all of us, including the pastor, face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ who is present where two or three are gathered together. Now, I don't make that emphatic statement very often, but it is something that the Holy Spirit has impressed upon me to the point where there's almost a sorrow connected with it. And that's when I know that it's, the Holy Spirit is maybe not grieved, but concerned about the church, including this one. So, that's a pastoral duty. Okay, I'm done with that. Now, let's continue. So, participation in Messiah's fidelity by the believer is rectitude, not rectification. See what I'm doing? I'm rightly dividing the definitions of rectitude and rectification. And law, Moses' prescriptions, and law, pars pro toto, for the whole Old Testament. Apart from the law, Moses' law, a righteousness from God has been manifested, which is testified to by the law, big L, the whole Old Testament. What's in Paul's Bible? The righteous act of God in Christ. What's in the teacher's Bible? A prescription for righteousness by doing. What's in your Bible? Hey, preacher, what's in your Bible? Hey, cardinal, what's in your Bible? Hey, pirate, what's in your Bible? That was an attempt at humor. It fell very short. We've all sinned and come very short of being true comedians. Rectification is the act of God in Christ for all humankind. In fact, the most important thing is to understand that Jesus was rectified. Jesus was justified. Jesus was justified. Jesus was justified by the Spirit in 1 Timothy 3:16, as the pastorals rushed to our aid to interpret Romans. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus was justified by the Spirit. God is justified in Romans 3:4. God is justified in Romans 3:26, as He justifies the ungodly through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. God is justified. So, all flesh will not be justified by human works in response to the commandments of the law. All flesh will not be justified by human faith in response to the gospel. That's a tough one, isn't it? All flesh will not be justified... By human faith in response to the gospel. Just as much as all flesh will not be justified by human works in response to the commandments of the law. All flesh will be and all flesh has been justified by Christ's obedient response to God the Father's will to save all humankind. That is his will. Or is 1 Timothy 2, 3, just kidding? I don't think so. All flesh will be and all flesh has been justified by Christ's obedient response to God, the Father's will. In other words, when Jesus was justified, when the Spirit raised him from the dead, no one alive will be justified. So Christ died. When Christ died, all died it doesn't say all no living can be justified but it does say it says no living can be justified but Jesus died and when Christ died all died dead people can be justified Christ was justified and then he lived his resurrection was a proof that he was justified in his faithful obedience to the death of the cross his resurrection is the proof of the resurrection of all the human race in whom all will be made alive in Christ because when he was justified, so was everybody. That's what you're not getting yet. Or if you are, you're saying, that's too good. Wait a minute, that's, wait, that's too much of a stretch. If you're getting it, that's what you're saying. If you're not getting it, it's still opaque to you. We'll go from opaqueness to translucency, and then we'll go from translucency to transparency in the future weeks and months. Lord Willing. All flesh will be, in fact, all flesh has been justified by Christ's obedient response to God the Father's will to save all mankind. But we're anticipating here. We're anticipating. So, Romans 7 8, Paul says, but sin, now capitalize sin because it's an apocalyptic power, a supra, not superhuman. Because that would mean that sin is human, but it's a superhuman. It's suprahuman, meaning that sin is not a human. It is beyond a human strength. Supra, S U P R A, human. Suprahuman power. Sin, Paul said, commandeering the commandment, the very high and good thing from God, the highest good from God is the commandment. The, the law is good, it's holy, it's just, it's pure but sin commandeering the commandment as a base of operations. I'm using the military language here because there is a military metaphor here with the word aforme It means a base of operations. But sin commandeering the commandment as a base of operations. You see, sin is what's being talked about here. The worst evil involves the corruption of the highest good. Sin is the culprit here, not the law. The law is not sin. Sin, he says, commandeering, or we could say hijacking the commandment or the requirement of the law as a base of operations, brought about in me. Now, he uses the word me and I, not because this is autobiographical, as it's been sometimes understood, but for another reason I'll show you in a minute. Sin, commandeering the commandment, or taking hostage the commandment as a base of operations, brought about in me, not the law, but sin, using the law, brought about in me every kind of covetousness. Monetary lust, sexual lust, you name it, any kind of lust, it, it worked in me every one of those things. They're all roiling around in there now, thanks. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So, I always use, the, it's a stupid illustration, but it might help you if you're stupid like me. It's, I think of it as, I'm just sitting watching TV. I'm p- perfectly content. I feel kind of full. I don't feel like I got to eat anything. I'm just completely content. And then somebody comes on the TV and says, you shall not participate in pizza. And they show you this pepperoni pizza and then an X through it. You can't have it. Now, I didn't have any problem until they said you can't have the pizza. Now it's all roiling inside. I want that pizza. I will have it at any cost. They don't deliver anymore. Then I will rob the pizza shop. I don't care how late it is. It's, you see, it's working. It's it's a stupid illustration. I apologize. But sin... Apart from sin, the law, or apart from the law, small l, sin is dead. He uses that word apart from the law again. It's the flip side of saying, by the law, sin is awakened to life. He's actually saying in, in a kind of a twisted way, by the law, sin is resurrected. Paul had already said, apart from the law, righteousness from God is revealed. Apart from the law, apart from Moses' law, the righteousness from God is revealed. Romans 3.21. Now he says, same phrase, apart from the law, sin is dead. It's dormant. It's just dead. Again, this is another way of saying that with the law, sin is alive and well. The law awakens sin from its death or its dormancy, and sin then takes the law captive for its own corrupt purpose. Corruptio optimi pessima. And so, this doesn't make the law to be sin. He's answering his question from 7 7. Is the law therefore sin? Like some of you read me in Galatians, that's not what I'm saying. The law isn't sin. What is sin? Sin is sin. So he says, this doesn't make the law to be equal to sin, as some have concluded Paul to be saying, especially if they had read or misread Galatians. The law prohibited covetousness. Sin hijacked the law or commandeered the law to achieve all kinds of covetousness, In the law abider, the law abiding Jewish Christian or the Jew or the Jewish Christian or the Gentile. Now, Paul uses I language throughout this passage, but this does not mean that this is autobiographical per se. It's not Paul giving his testimony for when he was Saul of Tarsus or before his salvation, or after. It's neither of those. People say, is that Paul before? Or after? It's not Paul. The I, let me just put it this way, and this isn't Paul Meyer, this is me. I thought of this today, and I've got to support it, I realize. But the I is illustrating the principle that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So by doing that, the apostle is showing to the elitist arrogance of the group bias of some Jewish Christians under the influence of this teacher, by doing this, the apostle to the nations undercuts their boasting, their elitist arrogance that's caused them to judge the Gentile Christians, their Gentile brothers, as not yet having attained rectification and therefore still liable to God's damning wrath. Now, Romans 7, 9, Paul says, Now once I was alive without the law. He used the word I. But then the commandment, that's the expression of the law's demand. The commandment is the same as the law, but it's, in its expression of the law's demand. The law came. When the commandment came. Sin was revived. Some even say resurrected. And I died. Says 10A. Who's the I here? I'll tell you who the I is. It's the no one. I. The I is the no one. Who will be justified by the works of the law due to the incontrovertible fact that the sin that controls all of humanity only intensifies its control and increases one's complicity to sin and multiplies sinful acts through the one who attempts to secure rectitude through the law. So you're saying you're justified by the doing of the works of the law. I'm saying that trying to do the works of the law only increases sin's control over you. So what are you bragging about against your brothers who aren't justified by the works of the law? Now there was a certain person who realized this and he wrote a song called, I can't get no satisfaction from obeying the law. Keith Richards, I think his name was. By the way, read the lyrics to that song one time, and you'll be amazed how it doesn't make any sense at all, whatsoever. Reminds me of the person, that the deadhead. They go around following the Grateful Dead. It's, it's crude, but it's, it's Thursday, really, because we're not coming here Thursday, so I have the excuse. But the Grateful Dead ran out of marijuana one night and was at a concert and he said, this music really sucks. Anyways, anyway. That's what happens when you when you, re- you were a rock and roll fan and then all of a sudden you read their lyrics and you go, what? A man comes on the radio and says you're not a man unless you smoke the same cigarette as me and... What? Anyways. So much for... Another attempt at humor. So who's the I? It's the no one who can be justified by the works of the law due to the fact that sin controls all humanity and only intensifies under the law. But the arrow keeps going, and we're just anticipating where it's going. I'll tell you where it's going, Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness what does that mean one of the things it means christ is the termination of the law as a means to secure rectitude to everyone who believes in other words to the one who believes what does the one who who is the one who believes the one who believes is the one who believes that god has rectified us all through the act of god in christ to that one there the law is no longer a means to righteousness Christ is the end of the law for righteousness there again Romans 10 4, what is the opposition there is it the justification by faith versus justification by the law no it's justification by the law versus justification by Christ Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for rectitude or for rectification to everyone who believes and that's important. Let me explain it again. That means Christ is the termination of the law as a means to secure rectitude to everyone who believes because everyone who believes has believed that Christ's faithfulness has secured rectification for all. That's what it means to believe. It means to have a perception of, staros eyed it means to see through the eyes of the cross it means to see and believe and understand that Christ has justified us all through an act of God through him at the cross moreover the spirit of Christ is the producer in us of the love of God that fulfills the rectitude that the law commanded. All the law hangs on this, all the prophets too. All the requirements of the law found throughout the Old Testament are fulfilled in this, that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is one love, and it's the love that God the Holy Spirit pours out in our hearts. It says Romans 5.5. 5. And so the Spirit of Christ is the producer in us of the love of God that fulfills the rectitude that the law commanded. So what we have in Romans 7, 7 through 24. Incidentally, don't do what somebody did last time I made that Grateful Dead joke and come up and say, yeah, but their music really is good. <laughs> don't, I, 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 I faithfully disagree with you. I'll just agree to disagree. Plus, if you tell me that, I'll think you're stoned. So then, the Spirit of Christ is the producer in us of the love of God. Once in a while, I get into a really weird mood. Today is one of those days. The Spirit of Christ is the producer and the director, for that matter. What we have in Romans 7, 7 to 24, though, then, is the perishing person under the law. You say, how do you get that? Well, look at 724. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, wretched. All the people in the world that are miserable aren't as miserable as I am. Why? Because the law that I thought would justify and bring me life has brought me nothing but death and grief. I can't get no satisfaction. So what we have in Romans 7, 7 to 24 is the perishing person under the law. And listen carefully. The good news is whose only way out of this particularly miserable condition is Jesus Christ. In Romans 7.25, I thank God through Jesus Christ. That's the answer. I sounded like Billy Graham there, didn't I? A little bit. He lives on Romans 7 25 Jesus Christ by whom we are rectified and the spirit of Christ Romans 8 1 through 11 there's a continuity there because it is Jesus Christ our Lord by whom we are rectified and the spirit of Christ by whom God brings us to rectitude, a life that is approved by God, a livingness that is approved by God through the spirit of the Christ, the crucified Christ. And so Romans 7, 7 to 25 is not autobiographical of Paul before or after his conversion. It's the demonstration through a speech in character of one who is perishing because he or she can't get no satisfaction. That is, they cannot attain rectification or rectitude by doing deeds in devotion to the law or even by being blameless. By doing all the deeds Of the law of Moses that were required. In that sense. Though this is not autobiographical of Paul per se. It is not an alien experience to him in one regard. Because as Saul of Tarsus. Listen carefully. He was blameless. As far as the righteousness of the law. As far as outward obedience to the law. He was blameless. This doesn't contradict Romans 7 and Philippians 3.6 but at the same time he persecuted the Israel of God with religious enthusiasm. Zeal. As a Hebrew of Hebrews and a Pharisee of Pharisees his feet were swift to shed blood. Remember the Katina their feet are swift to shed blood Paul blameless according to the law had feet that were swift to shed blood If Paul and I said this before I'll say it again if Paul Saul of Tarsus was given a head of steam to continue in that path He would have eventually been guilty of the great Holocaust of destroying the new creation and the Israel of God altogether That's why he's the worst of sinners So pick a dictator and say why did God justify him and you'll be asking a question that reveals that you know nothing about God at all or about the cross of Christ and that you may be starry eyed because you worship celebrities and are in fear of celebrities and pay all the attention you can to the news and to the hostility on either side of the news. Or you can understand the good news through the cross of Christ and understand that all flesh has been justified by an act of God in Christ. So, the measure that you're agitated by what the left does over here or what the right does over here is the measure that you can take your temperature and realize that you are useless for the spiritual life you're living in the passe age and reacting to its stimuli. So, let's go on and close. 10b, Paul says, I discovered, but he's quoting the I, which isn't Paul. It's anybody, and it's nobody. I discovered that the commandment that was meant for life Like Leviticus 18.5 says, do this, those who do them will live by them. I discovered that the commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. Verse 11, for sin, capital S-I-N, an apocalyptic supra power. Seizing a base of operation through the commandment deceived me. Deception is one of the greatest tactics of war. And through it, killed me. Let me read it again. For sin, seizing a base of operations through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, that is the law, killed me. Sin is portrayed by Paul throughout Romans 6 and 7 as a suprahuman power. And Paul W. Meyer, and I will quote him in our closing, in his truly groundbreaking, really groundbreaking article entitled The Worm at the Core of the Apple, exegetical reflections in Romans found in a book called The Conversation Continues, Studies in Paul and John in honor of J. Lewis Martin, Abingdon Press, Nashville, Tennessee, 1990, page 74, for example. Paul Meyer, Paul W. Meyer, identified Romans 710B, which we just read, 211, to be the climax and center of this paragraph. On these verses, this is what he wrote. The clear meaning of these sentences is that the effect of sin italicizes, on the genuinely religious person who looks to God's Torah for life has been to produce exactly its opposite, death. He goes on to say the transcendently demonic nature of sin is its power to pervert the highest and best in all human piety. Typified by the best in Paul's world, his own commitment to God's holy commandment in such a way as to produce death in place of the promised life. What's Paul doing here? He's undercutting the confidence of the Christian Jews who were boasting in their obedience to Moses' law. As their righteousness and by doing so he has demolished the basis for their judgments on their Christian Gentile siblings in Rome. He does this with finesse and finality. Listen carefully not by demonizing the law of God which he was accused of doing but by showing sin in its truly demonic nature. Or quiddity. Once again, corruptio optimi pessima, the worst evil consists in the corruption of the highest good. To make another important interpretive point then, Meyer writes that this maxim or this adage, corruptio optimi pessima, that this adage or this maxim or this motto or slogan or saying, we could say, quote, is not depicted here simply as a private experience from Paul's Jewish past. It is all part of Paul's explanation of why God sent God's own son on behalf of all to deal with sin as the law could not. This conclusion is what made me appreciate Meyer more than his argument because the conclusion to me is well appreciated. Not least because it surely resonates with the Apostle's stated intention and all of his epistles hang together as a single book, as we're going to find out. The Apostle's stated atten- intention, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians two two, and in Galatians 6.14, To communicate nothing, as he proclaimed this gospel, to communicate nothing that is dissociated from and not centered in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Human actions. This is my own closing. It's a quotable quote, but you'll probably have to fix it to make it palatable. Human actions can be compared with one another and measured by each other, leading to divisions. God's action in Christ is both incomparable and immeasurable and can only finally produce unity. A slight explanation will close. Human actions can be compared with one another and measured by each other, leading <clears throat> to divisions. That's why Paul said in Second Corinthians ten twelve to 13, those who compare themselves with themselves and measure themselves by themselves are not wise. <clears throat> but God's action in Christ is both incomparable and immeasurable, and can only finally produce unity. Father, I only echo the prayer of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, that they may be one. And we do this in closing of this message tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.